Hey everyone, it's Dan, back with another episode from the deep freezer that we have reheated to serve to you. This one features two science nerds of the food world, Harold McGee and Nick Sharma. Nick, by the way, has a new book out as of just a couple months ago called Veg Table. It takes the same scientific approach as his first book, but focuses more on veggies. Remember that if you have an episode you'd like us to reheat, send me a voice memo or email at hello at sporkful.com. Thanks. First off, I just wanted to sort of ask to get us rolling here. Your new book is all about smells. Of the many smells you talk about, one of them is the smell of a wet dog. Yes. Now, anyone who's ever had a dog knows your dog goes out in the rain and comes back all wet and has a very distinct smell. And I personally, I love that smell. My wife does not like that smell. (laughs) Based on that information, what can you tell me about our respective preferences in food and eating? Wow. Uh, (laughs) I've got to tread carefully here. (laughs) This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Before we get to the show, are you looking for the perfect gift for the eater in your life? How about a Sporkful t-shirt? We have five new designs out now. One of them says, I'm not a foodie, I'm an eater. There's an eat more, eat better, eat more better one. There's even a cheese side down t-shirt. For those of you who agree with me, that's how cheeseburgers and pizza should be eaten. There's others and there's some available in kids sizes. Get them for the whole family. Get one for yourself while you're at it. I think you deserve it. Do note that because of COVID, we can't guarantee you'll get it by Christmas. But that's okay. Put an IOU in someone's stocking. They'll still love it. Check out all our teas now at sporkful.com slash store. Okay, let's get into it. This week, we're deep diving into two books custom tailored for all you food science nerds. Later on, I'll talk with Nick Sharma about his new book, The Flavor Equation. But first, that voice you heard earlier was Harold McGee. Back in the 80s, he wrote a seminal food science book called On Food and Cooking. You may have heard of it. It's still considered by many to be the Bible of modern-day food science. In it, Harold explains things like what happens on a molecular level when you refrigerate a tomato, or what's the actual difference between milk and cream, and how does this affect the way we use each one in cooking? I know this stuff may seem simple now. If you're curious, you can just Google it. But this was before Google, before our culture was so obsessed with food and cooking. When Harold's book came out, it was revolutionary. Since then, he's continued to write about the science of food and drink. Now he has a new book out called Nosedive, A Field Guide to the World's Smells. In it, he breaks down the chemical compounds that make up the smells all around us, from tortilla chips to tree bark, from fancy cheese to toe cheese. Which reminds me, Harold's still got to answer my question. I love the smell of a wet dog. My wife hates it. What does that say about our preferences in flavor? My guess is that you enjoy a broad range of flavors in foods, sometimes maybe not uh, what a lot of people would consider the most pleasant. And that's that's true. I think we talked on this show about the fact that I, I am a more adventurous eater. She eats a wide range of things, but she doesn't have the same desire to like go out and try new things. Like she's content to enjoy the things that she enjoys. Yeah, and I mean the uh, the smell of a wet dog is on the funky side, right? And so, so what what's a specific food that a person who loves the smell of wet dog is likely to like because it has some of the same compounds? Well, it would be fermented foods. You know, the the, the microbiome on a dog and the microbiome in say sauerkraut 
there there are similarities. They're you know broadly different because a dog is different from cabbage, but uh, <laughs> right, uh, yeah. you, you've still got uh, microbes breaking down the the large molecules that the host is made up of and generating smaller molecules that are light enough that they can fly out into the air and uh, and we can detect them as smells. Got it. I mean, my wife does ha- actually happen to like sauerkraut a lot, um, but she's not a big fan of, uh, you know, she doesn't love spicy foods. She doesn't love, like, let's say fermented foods. I would think of like kimchi. Um, what's another fermented food that she doesn't love? Maybe stinky tofu? Yeah, or like um, um stinky cheese. Is that different? Yeah. Is stinky cheese a different category? No, no. In fact, stinky cheese is closer to wet dog. Uh, and that's because sticky cheese is made from the product of a mammal, and dogs are mammals, and so you know, there's much more, much much closer similarity between those two than between dogs and sauerkraut. Got it. <laughs> so, so a dog is more like stinky cheese than cabbage. Uh, that's right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so let's take a step back here and and talk big picture for a minute. For your first book in 10 years, you decided to write a 600-page tome about smells. Why? So 10 years ago, I thought I was writing a book about flavor because my usual beat is food and drink. And then what happened was I got interested in why it is that different flavors echo each other. For example, a well-aged Parmesan like a year, year and a half old, can have a really distinct aroma of pineapple to it. But it just occurred to me to ask the question, what is it that, you know, year and a half old cow's milk has in common with a ripe tropical fruit? And then I began to wonder about uh, foods that echoed not just each other, but other things in the world that aren't particularly edible. Like a wet dog. Right, yeah. 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 So that led me into this kind of deeper dive into not just the smells of food and drink, but the smells of the world at large. And that took 10 years because I didn't know anything about the rest of the world. So I had to learn it up. (laughs) Right, right. And, And you have this great passage in the book that I'd love to ask you to read, if you could, please. I've written this book to share what I've learned to point out and delve into smells that are out there to be noticed and to relate what those smells can tell us about how they came to be, about the otherwise insensible workings of the world. Not just food and drink and roses, but compost and sodden flower pots, asphalt and laptops, old books and dog paws, the myriad mundane yet revelatory things that fill our lives. There's a rich world of sensations and significance out there, intangible and invisible and fleeting, but vivid and real. It occurs to me when reading that passage, I feel like part of this book is sort of an exercise in in mindfulness and in appreciating simple pleasures. Yeah, I would I would say that it's largely about paying the rest of the world, the same kind of attention that people who love food and drink pay to food and drink. It's kind of savoring the other... Um, 99.9% of existence. Yeah, yeah. And and also, uh, you know, when when we're smelling the rest of the world, you know, it's, it's by breathing. We breathe 
you know, dozens of times a minute. And every time we take in a breath, there's the potential for noticing something about the volatile molecules that are in the air around us there to be experienced if we happen to be paying attention. Right. So, so there's this idea that there are incredible wonders all around us if we just sort of know what to smell for. Um, your, your book has hundreds, if not thousands of examples of the, the compounds and the volatiles that create the smells in the world around us. I'm picking one out of the many that, that was especially interesting to me, and that was tea leaves. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, you talk a lot in the book about managed food chemistry, the way that we take foods and intentionally uh, uh, change them in some way in order to produce some different result, whether it's uh, aging, salting, curing, cooking, any one of the many things we do. So just like walk me through the kind of the evolution of a tea leaf from it being a leaf on a plant to being in a beverage and how the how the smells change. So what you do is you um, pick very, very young leaves because they have the most active kind of machinery of life. They're in the process of growing, and so they've got lots of enzymes just kind of constructing things and protecting them against insects and so on and so on. When you pick the leaves, they kind of go into shock because they've been detached from the plant. And so those enzymes go into overdrive. And one of the things they do is produce signals that they're sending to themselves and to the rest of the plant to say, I've just been injured, you should know that, and you know, ramp up your defenses. And some of those signals and defenses are volatiles. They're small molecules that do fly up into the air and that we can detect. So all you have to do is pick some tea leaves and let them wither, let them dry out a little bit, and then pick them up and smell them. And instead of smelling like green leaves, they smell like flowers. Hmm. It's just a, an amazing experience. And so what I'm hearing from this is that when you enjoy a cup of tea, you're, you're really just taking pleasure in the tea plant's cries for help. <laughs> that's pretty much it. <laughs> for, for, for green tea, that's, that's exactly it. Then what happens is if you want to make black tea, then you take those same withered tea leaves and you kind of rub them between your hands, if you're doing it on a small scale, to bruise them. So you're, you're kind of, you know, insulting them even more. <laughs> and that generates another layer of flavors. So how much of our sense of smell is genetic? It's a lot. So we have about 400 different receptors for smell. And in the studies that have been done, it seems that pretty much no one has exactly the same set of active receptors as anybody else. So nobody has the full set of 400, as far as anyone knows. But which, which ones are missing or inactive uh, varies from person to person. And so when we smell things, we're almost always smelling something a little bit different from person sitting right next to us smelling exactly the same. Are you able to, to say how wide is the range of different people's smells? Uh, well, Maybe the best way to think about it is to say that some people cannot smell, uh, let's see, how can I say this better? Asparagus? Um, Were you going to say asparagus pee? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an example. <laughs> 
some people just can't smell something that other people find so obvious and so repulsive that they can't believe that the other person can't smell it. When we eat asparagus, we digest the various compounds in asparagus and excrete the ones that we can't make good use of. And one of the dominant things that we excrete in our urine is a sulfur compound that is pretty smelly. And very early on, I'd say maybe 100 years ago, when people got interested in this question, because the smells of our bodies tell us something about what's going on in our bodies, at first they thought it was some people produce the smelly compound and some people don't. So it's a difference in their metabolism. That turns out to be part of the answer, but only part, because it also turns out that some people simply can't smell that smelly molecule and others can. It's so silly that we spend so much time talking about what we think tastes good when our individual experiences of a single bite of food can be so incredibly different from one person to another. Yeah, and that's true at, at every level. I mean, we're, we're talking right now about you know the, the very earliest level of uh, our experience of food and drink, which is the, the receptors that we have to detect what's in the food and drink. But then there's what our brains are able to do with that information, and that has to do with our, our histories, our, our database of experience and, and expectations and so on. Right. But I also feel like the world needs more like um, smell empathy. <laughs> You know, like, like like if you could invent a device that would allow you to just smell the world the way someone else smells it, I think that would be such an amazing experience. And it's like to get back to, to like the difference between my taste in food and my wife's taste in food, she actually has a very sensitive sense of smell. Twice since I have met her, she has jumped up in the middle of the night from a dead sleep because she smelled a fire down the street before you could hear any sirens. Wow. It's like living with Lassie. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, so she has a very sensitive sense of smell, which I think may be part of the reason why she doesn't like stronger flavors and strong smelling foods because they're too strong for her. Um, whereas my sense is probably more muted, and so I can kind of, I can get into it more easily. Yeah, I think that's probably absolutely right, and it's it's very well documented in the case of taste, for example, where some people are relatively insensitive to a lot of bitter tastes, and others are hypersensitive to them. And so that goes a long way to explaining why it is, for example, that some people just can't stand vegetables from the, the cabbage family, like Brussels sprouts, which often have a really uh, a distinct bitterness. And it's not it's not just you know childlike. Oh, I don't like that. It's that they're they're getting a really strong signal that this is not good for them. So don't judge people who don't like a food you like. It may smell or taste very different to them. Have some smell empathy. Smell empathy. We got to workshop that. Look anyway. That being said. Harold adds that our perception of different smells can change over time with our experience. We can learn to like a smell in the same way we acquire a taste for something. In fact, what we think of as acquiring a taste may sometimes actually be acquiring a smell. In either case, the key to doing it is exposure. Start with small amounts, maybe just a smell without a taste, and build from there. All right, Harold, before I let you go, are you ready for the lightning round, Everything's Coming Up Roses edition? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not, but uh, I'll do my best. 
Your book is about smells. I have three lightning round questions for you, all relating to roses. Here we go. In the Outcast song, Roses, Andre 3000 famously sings that roses really smell like poo-poo. Yeah, I know you like to thank you. Don't stink, but lean a little bit closer. See, roses really smell like poo-poo-poo. Yeah. Is there something in the chemical makeup of roses that supports his claim? Ah, there are many, many different varieties of rose, so I'm sure that there's one of them out there <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that has some crossover, but I couldn't name it for you. Okay, but as we've learned, it also could be something to do with Andre 3000's smell receptors. That's right. Okay. That's right. Or or his experience when he was a child of roses in the garden where a dog had just been. Got it. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Um, next question. Would a rose by any other name smell as sweet? <laughs> uh, yes, I, I think it would, because plenty of cultures enjoy roses and they don't call them roses. So I'm going to have to disagree with you on this one, Harold. I think that if you did a study where you gave people two identical roses, but you told them that one was called the sugar rose and one was called the skunk rose, they would tell you that the sugar rose smelled sweeter. And the skunk rose did not smell this sweet. Uh, but that's changing the modifier and not rose, right? Well, oh, no. would rose by any other name? So you're calling them both uh. roses, which is different. <laughs> I did not anticipate a semantic <laughs> rejoinder from the scientist. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I started out in literature, so okay. wa watch your step. <laughs> All right, final question. We're often told to stop and smell the roses. What's the one smell you always stop for? The, the smell I always stop for is the, the unexpected smell. Going for a run, for example, I live in a residential area. People have, uh, they're cooking at, you know, five or six o'clock in the evening. And when I get the smell of cooking, which is just kind of a generic smell, I do kind of stop and try to imagine what it is that's in the frying pan. Sometimes it's pretty easy. Onions, garlic, and tomatoes, that's easy. Sometimes it's not so easy, but it's a lot of fun to try to figure it out. Do you ever knock on the door and ask? <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> Especially not wearing a mask. <laughs> Well, Harold, this has been I really enjoy the conversation and uh, hope we'll get a chance to cross paths in person someday soon. Likewise, yeah. likewise. Yeah, no, I, I had a lot of fun. It's not like any other interview I've done, so. Oh, I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> That's Harold McGee. His new book is called Nosedive, A Field Guide to the World's Smells. It's out now. Harold's book is laser-focused on aroma. Coming up, we'll turn to a cookbook that takes a holistic approach to the eating experience that explores the role not only of taste and smell, but also of things like mouthfeel and emotion. Stick around. It's time to open up a can of advertisements. Welcome back to another Sporkful Reheat. I'm Dan Pashman. Hey, check out my Instagram when you get a chance. I share what I'm up to, what I'm eating, all of my hot takes that don't always make the cut here on the Sporkful, although I don't know why 
company, but who want to cut out my rants about the best way to make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. But the point is that that stuff is on my Instagram. Also, sometimes I'm like debating, what, what, what should we do for this episode? And I'll put up a poll. So it gives you a chance to actually have input into the show. So you can do it right now while you're listening. Follow me on Instagram at the sporkful. Again, that's at the sporkful. Thanks. All right, back to this week's reheat. Now, back to some fresh coffee table reads for all you food science nerds out there. When Nick Sharma moved to the U.S. from Mumbai, he wanted to pursue a career in science. He studied molecular genetics in college, worked in the pharmaceutical industry. But eventually he quit his job to pursue his dream of working with food. He started a blog where he showcases both his food photography and his recipes. His dishes lean South Asian and Mediterranean, but they extend far beyond. His new cookbook marries his science background with his kitchen skills. It's called The Flavor Equation, The Science of Great Cooking Explained. So the flavor equation is something that when I was in school, uh, I come from a science background. And one of the things that I learned in school was flavor is a multidimensional component. So Nick's book details the various dimensions of flavor. And I should say, I know many of us use the words taste and flavor interchangeably, but in proper food science, they're actually different. Taste is what happens in your mouth. Flavor is the whole experience. And Nick says flavor includes six components, aroma, sight, taste, emotion, sound, mouthfeel. Now, for our conversation, I want to get into the three items in that equation that I think get less attention in food science, emotion, sound, and mouthfeel. My first question for Nick, is there a way to think of emotion like an ingredient? Like, how can I use an understanding of the way emotion informs flavor to make my food better for people eating it? You know what? When I write about food for the different outlets that I write, I'm always encouraged by my editors to bring in emotion. So I started paying attention to that when I was writing the book and started to note down what dishes made me happy or sad. I also learned during my research that emotions influence the perception of flavor and flavor can also influence the perception of emotion. They go both ways. Right. One of the studies that came up was how if you've lost a sports game, um, you know, food tastes sour, you're not happy. And then oh. if you win something, it stays sweeter. And so you're in- So when people talk about a victory tasting so sweet, that's actually, it actually does. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so Nick says in that sense, emotion can be an ingredient. Here's how you use it in your cooking. Before you serve someone something you made, tell them an elaborate story about why this dish is so meaningful to you. How much effort you went to to get certain ingredients. If people are emotionally connected to food you've cooked, it should improve the flavor for them. Who cares if it's true? You want people to like your cooking or not? Anyway, Nick says another one of the less obvious factors in flavor is sound. Think about the time you go on an airplane. And I think Lufthansa was one of the airlines they were looking at based on their records that they were selling or they were rather buying a lot of tomato juice for flights. And it turns out that the high sounds of the plane, when you're flying in a plane, that it's it's just so intense, it affects your taste receptors for umami and it suppresses some of the other taste receptors in your mouth. And so you're inclined to consume more tomato juice. Because it's so loud on the plane. Right. And also there's a dryness that happens with um, the plane because of the air conditioning. And lo and behold, like scientists go and measure these things and they find that sound is affecting the taste receptors as well. And 
I then went back to think about, okay, so when I fly on a plane, what is the drink that I always get? I don't drink coffee or tea, but I always get tomato juice. And when I'm on land, I never buy tomato juice. I right. like it. <laughs> and so it turns out it actually tastes much better on a plane. In other words, tomato juice tastes better on a plane because we can't taste it as much. And if you think about it, the idea that loud noise reduces flavor perception makes sense. The sound is distracting. Like when you're driving on the highway, you're listening to loud music. Then you get off the highway, and let's say you're going somewhere new, you have to navigate. What do you do? You turn down the volume. Now, the loud noise isn't actually stopping you from seeing where you're going, but it's a distraction in the same way that you taste less on a plane because it's so noisy. Okay, let's move on, because there's one more part of Nick's flavor equation I really want to get to. Mouthfeel. In his book, Nick cites research done that sorted people based on their preferred textures in food. And they classified in them into people that like crispy textures, chewy textures, I think uh, creamy uh, and smooth. And so if you think about it, every all of us like certain textures in food. Um, with soups, for example, with very smooth, velvety, creamy soups, I, my, I find my mouth palate tends to get a little exhausted from the monotony of that texture. So I bring in a lot of crispy things to it. And that is through garnishes. And then look at how chefs, a lot of chefs do this, right? They do the same thing. They'll have one major texture in a dish. And then that texture is contrasted. The boringness, I call it the boringness. Right. Or the mon- you know, it, it makes it much more interesting when you have something against it or that's um, contrasting against it. One of the questions that I have contemplated for years here on The Sporkful is the the question of when do you want bite consistency in a dish and when do you want bite variety in a dish? Okay. When, you know, when do you want one bite to the next to be different versus con- always the same? And I feel like as I have gotten older and my palate's expanded and I sort of crave more variety, I've moved towards bite variety. But I do still feel like there's a philosophical question here, Nick, because like, When you get the bite that has all the perfect ratios of all the components Uh and you're just like, that was the bite. Like, how do I get that bite over and over again? I don't want a different bite. I want another one of those bites. Uh That's when you want bite consistency. But then again, would that bite be as good if every bite was like that? That's a very good question. And I think bite consistency is very important. And I'll give you a reason for this. If you take the example of people or companies that make potato chips, they're constantly measuring the entire experience, right? Like when you open the bag, the sound that it makes, how the chip fractures and the sound that that makes, and they try to replicate that exactly under a certain set of standard conditions. So in that sense, I think it's very important um, because if people don't get it, and they use, especially when you're used to something, that it, I feel it shows up much more when you're emotionally connected to the way something is. Chocolate is another example. I think Cadbury's in England played around with the shapes. And then even though they said they didn't change the recipe, people claim that because they changed the shape, it wasn't tasting as sweet, it didn't taste as chocolatey or whatever. So I think there is that component when you're used to something, then you want that bite consistency. If it's something new that you've never experienced, I think your mind is much more open to saying, you know, I want to try something. I want it to be different every time so I can explore and taste the new... um, ratios like you said in each setting right but it's interesting i feel like i feel like there's two types of potato chips there's like your pringles or some of your other mass-produced you know classics um 
Lay's, Ruffles, et cetera, where like they kind of are all the same. But then, you know, nowadays more and more, I feel like kettle chips, kettle style chips, your Cape mm-hmm. Cod chips, those have become increasingly popular and those right. are not all the same in the bag. Now, I open up one of those bags and I'm a hunter. I will open the bag. I will look inside the bag and I want the chips that are folded over or twisted, contorted. <laughs> I don't want any flat chips. I want okay. maximum crunch. Okay. I pick out all those chips and then I give the flat ones to my kids. I um, knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but... um but I kind of, and then part of me feels like someday I'm going to invent a potato chip where they're all folded over and like doubled and quadrupled and starburst shapes, like only the best chips. But then would it be as good? Not every day in life can be a great day. If it was, then no day would be a great day. Right. There, yeah, I agree with you. I think there's that notion of it being unique and special because it's, say, one out of one out of 10. And I think that makes that makes a unique experience much more memorable. You know, if everything looked the same... You're not going to remember it. So, yeah, right. I agree with you on that. Okay. All right. I feel bad for your kids. <laughs> <laughs> What's your approach to eating kettle potato chips? Exactly yours. I give <laughs> I give the flat ones to my husband. He doesn't okay. really care. He hasn't noticed. He will now. Okay. He to this. It sounds like you guys are perfect for each other. <laughs> yeah, I made it that way. <laughs> I think now you have a sense of Nick's flavor equation. In the second part of his book, he explains how this equation plays out in a wide variety of dishes to create a range of flavor experiences. And he shares more than 100 recipes, including a variation on his go and coconut cake. That one's been on my to-cook list for a while. This version adds a trace leches component, so I might have to just skip straight to that one. Anyway, before I let Nick go, there was one more thing to do. All right, time now for the lightning round. Okay. You say the six components of the flavor equation are emotion, sight, sound, mouthfeel, aroma, taste. Which is the best band name? Aroma. I'm afraid that's incorrect. The correct answer was mouthfeel. Why? <laughs> I always thought that would be a great band name. It sounds, Ma- I mean, I feel people would think it would be a little creepy. But like you sing with your mouth and then you make people feel things with your singing. Mouthfeel. <laughs> But aroma sounds much more ethereal, like, you know, kind of like, I'm going to say, I'm going to embarrass myself, but see, okay. what is that cartoon gem and gem where everything was a hologram and she was a musician? That's oh, what I think. Gem and the holograms? Yeah, I remember that cartoon for some reason. That's what immediately came to mind. Um, all right. You know what? You're right. Uh, I think it depends on the kind of music. If you're playing sort of ethereal, dreamy soundscapes, aroma is a very nice. If you want to like just, you know, smash guitars on stage, then you go with mouthfeel. Yeah, okay. Two agree. All right. The components of flavor are, of course, very much tied to the senses, as we've discussed. If you had to cook using only one of your five senses, which would it be and why? It would be sound. Because my grandmother, my grandmother, that's how she cooked. Because she would always say, listen to the sound. Uh, because you can tell when something is done. Even when you chop a vegetable, she said, you know, you can chop fast and you don't have to look at it. I mean, watch out for your fingers, but you can hear when something's gone through and it's done. And so I've always used my sense of sound to judge endpoints when cooking. So to me, it's the most useful one. This is a bonus question of the lightning round. Okay. Now, and I'm just curious. Um, what's one way that you use sound in the kitchen 
to tell when something's done? What's a sound you listen for? So when I am cooking flatbreads on the stove, I can tell when it's ready to flip by the song. I call it the sizzling song that the bread sings. But as soon as it starts sizzling you, because of the fat, you can tell that it's ready to flip. All right. Last question. In the outcast song, Gasoline Dreams, Andre 3000 says, doesn't everyone like the taste of apple pie? Does everyone like the taste of apple pie? Uh, no. I'm pretty sure, yeah. No. Okay. Um, I think that plain old apple pie is kind of blah and boring, but if it has a good crisp crumble top, then I'm on board. I mean, I, apple pies don't move me in one way or the other. <laughs> I've made apple pies before. The, I think I don't like apple pies be as much because I prefer apples and cakes and tarts. I prefer pies that have berries for some reason. So blueberry uh, pie, we've got, because I can add lemon curd to it, lime curd or whatever, I like a little bit of tanginess to it, and apple pie doesn't really let me do that. It's kind of a one-note song. The, the old saying, as American as apple pie, it always bothered me. <laughs> you know, like, come on, we, we could do better. You said it, not me. <laughs> That's Nick Sharma. His new book is The Flavor Equation, The Science of Great Cooking Explained. It's out now. You can also find a lot of his recipes on his blog, which is called A Brown Table. So the two books featured this week might make for great gifts. I also mentioned our brand new Sporkful t-shirts available in adult and kid sizes, five different designs. Get those at sporkful.com store. Next week, we'll have more gift ideas. We'll hear about a beloved fruitcake that just won't die. And Nikita Richardson returns to tell us about the home seltzer machine of your dreams. That's next week. While you wait for that one, check out last week's show featuring the one and only LeVar Burton. He proves that he can read literally anything and make it sound amazing when he reads recipes. Come for that. Stay for the story about the time he brought stolen steaks home to his mother. That one's up now. Check it out. This show is produced by me, along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producers Andre Sohero and Tamika Weatherspoon. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. The show is mixed by Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Daisy Rosario. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Emmy, calling from Travis Air Force Base in Fairfield, California, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. The team that produces The Sporkful today includes me, along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producer Andres O'Hara. Our engineer is Jared O'Connell. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher Studios. Our executive producers are Nora Ritchie and Colin Anderson. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. 